we have the privilege of having Homer Jakarton here, the president of our North Africa and Middle East Union. Now, it's interesting, I had the privilege of being in Dubai last November. And I was with Elder Finley and Larry Romwell, and we were walking through the bazaar. And I'm, as you, you know, I'm a, I like to take pictures, and I was looking for the spice market. Well, I was in, looking for the spice market, and we got lost. And all of a sudden, this gentleman yells out, and there he says, Pastor Finley, Pastor Finley. And we look around because we don't think we know anybody there. And this man walks up in a uniform, and he says, I just want you to know that I listen to you all the time. See, I'm able to get audio verse and I download sermons every week because there is no church around and so I get my spiritual fulfillment from listening to you through audio verse. I own a business so he would be a real ASI member and they're in um, Dubai and he says but I have the privilege every Sabbath me and a team have a privilege he's pulled out a card we're able to pray with patients at the hospitals and that's my ministry and so I was just really gratified to hear that we have business people and lay people that are involved all Amen. over the world. Amen. And Homer, you went, because I know, Homer, we've known each other for, we're trying to remember, we couldn't remember how long we've <laughs> known each other, but you were, had a nice, lived in Washington, D.C., and uh, had, a, had a job there. What made you decide to go to the Middle East? Well, Denzel, it's more dangerous in Washington, D.C. than it is in the Middle East. <laughs> but that wasn't the reason. We, uh, you know, we have grandkids here. Our parents are getting older. I, I hugged my folks goodbye a couple of days ago, and I always know that could be the last time I see them. But we felt God was calling us. There are so few people in the Middle East and North Africa to share the gospel. Amen. And so when they asked me to go, we said yes. Homer, thank you for sharing, and please tell us what's on your heart. Thank you, Denzel. We could repeat that story you just shared with us many times, Denzel. There are many people that are watching and listening even that we don't know about. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell some stories. I'm not going to show any pictures for security reasons. I'm going to change the names on any of the people that I talk about. A lot of times I won't tell you what country it's from. But, but you can know, I want you to get a sense for what's happening in the Middle East and North Africa Union. A few years ago, a teenager that I'm going to call Walid, he's, he's from one of our North African countries. A few years ago, he was a teenager, and, and he was watching curiously but suspiciously as a group of Christian young people came to his village. What in the world would they want to do coming to his village, he wondered. But after a few minutes, they organized a football game, soccer game, and they began to play, and Walid loved football, and so soon he was joining with them. And it wasn't long, and he became fast friends with three of the young men. They spent all their time together each day during the week or two that the young people were there. One of the young men was asking Walid lots of deep, serious questions about Islam. And one night as Walid went back to his room, he was thinking, you know, if I could convince that young man to become a Muslim, I would assure myself a place in paradise. So for the next three days, Walid worked intently on that young man. 
He used every argument, every thing that he had ever heard or been taught. And by the end of the third day, that young Christian man said the Shahada and became a Muslim. Walid went back to his room that night thinking he would be thrilled and excited. I mean, I just assured myself a place in paradise, but he wasn't. He laid on his bed tossing and turning. What was wrong? Why, why didn't he feel better about what was happening? And then a thought came to Walid. It was so strong a thought that it was almost as if a voice had spoken to him. Walid, you've been criticizing the Bible a lot, but you've never read a word of it. Well, Walid thought, the next day he went to see the three young men and it was their last day in the village and he said to them, could you write down some passages from the Bible on a piece of paper that I could read later? He didn't know what a hard assignment he was giving them. He knew that Muslim young people learn large passages of the Quran by memory. He didn't know that most Christian young people don't. And those three young men thought and thought and thought. And they finally came up with two or three things and put them on some scraps of paper and Walid stuck them in his pocket. He went back to his room that night and he took out the first one. It was going to be the first passage of Scripture he had ever read. It was a passage about Mary being the mother of God. Walid crumpled it up and threw it across the room in disgust. What a, what a perverted book those Christians have, he said. Everybody knows God didn't have a mother. Well, Walid didn't know that wasn't from the Bible. It was from their catechism. And they didn't know it wasn't from the Bible. It was just the only thing they could think of and they had put it down. So he pulled the next piece out. It was also from their catechism but at least it was quoting from the Bible. At the top it said, the Our Father. And as Walid read through those phrases of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. An emotion swept over him like nothing he had ever experienced before. Walid's father had died when he was a little boy and Walid had longed all his young life for a daddy that he could talk to like the other boys had. He, he knew God, he prayed to God, he went to the mosque, he knew that God was the creator, he was the almighty, he was the merciful, he was the beneficent. He could name the 99 names of God that Muslims look at especially, but he had never heard anybody refer to God as a father. That night, as Walid finished his regular Muslim prayers, he looked up and talked to God like he might have talked to his father if he was still alive. It was a powerful experience. He, he was moved by it. And so the next day, after all five times of prayer, he talked to God in his heart like he would have talked to his father. Day after day he did that. Even in the mosque, he would have his regular prayers and then talk to God like a father. You know, we're finding throughout the Muslim world that that concept of God as a father is something that is powerful to Muslims. There's actually a book called, I, I Dared to Call Him Father. If you ever get a chance to read it, it'll give you a little bit of a picture of, of the thinking there. But Walid was going for about a year and a half then, talking with God as a father every day. Toward the end of that time, another thought came into his mind. We know that there's a battle going on and there are different forces giving us thoughts. This thought was coming from the other side. The thought was, Walid, you know you learn to pray like that from Christians. 
And if you keep doing it, you're probably going to become a Christian. And Walid thought, no, no, I, I don't want to be a Christian. Christians are heathens. They drink alcohol, they eat pork, they pray to saints. I don't want to be a heathen Christian. So Walid tried to stop. That night when he said his regular Muslim prayers, he just stopped. He didn't talk to God like a father. But something was empty. He couldn't sleep. He was tossing and turning. He missed that that close time with God, his Father. And finally, he broke down and did it again. And for the next week or two, Walid was wrestling with God. He was wrestling with himself. He wanted to keep talking to God like a father, but he felt he should quit. And then in the midst of that wrestling, Walid had a dream. In his dream, he saw that he had died and his body was laid out on the ground in the normal fashion. Everything was normal. There was nothing fearful about the dream. The family gathered around in a circle in the normal way. Some of the family members dug the grave. When it was ready, one uncle came over and picked Walid's body up by the head and the other uncle came and picked him up by the feet and, and began to carry his body toward the grave. It was just the way he had seen it happen many times. But suddenly in his dream, he saw something that nobody else seemed to be seeing. He saw flames leaping up out of the grave. And the uncles were moving step by step toward that grave to, to drop his body in that burning grave. And he was terrified. But just before they dropped the body in, a voice called out, Stop! Everybody turned to look and there stood Jesus at the end of the grave. Jesus had his hand up and he said, don't put him in there. This one belongs to me. And then Walid woke up, sweat pouring off his body. What did the prophet Isa mean? This one belongs to me. Remember, he didn't know of Jesus as anything except a prophet. What did the prophet mean? This one belongs to me. For the next week or two, Walid could hardly sleep or eat. He was just constantly thinking, what did Isa mean? This one belongs to me. Then one day, Walid found himself in a bookstore. And the bookstores in our part of the world can be just like the bookstores you're used to here, or they can be really fascinating places. You know, you'll, you'll go into one part of a building and find that there will be many, many, many little cubicles, each one with, with an old man sitting in the back looking over his glasses and, and stacks of books and magazines from floor to ceiling. If you find what you want, you have to pull it out carefully and make sure the whole stack doesn't fall over. And Walid was standing in one of those, absent-mindedly, vacantly staring at the stack of books in front of him. He wasn't thinking about anything there. He was thinking about, what did the prophet Isa mean? I belong to him. And then his eyes focused, and right in front of him were two Bibles, the first two he had ever seen in his life. Excitedly, Walid pulled them out of the stack and rushed to the little old man who quickly grabbed the Bibles with terror on his face and stuffed them under the counter and said, Absolutely not. Do you know what would happen to me if I sold those Bibles to you, a Muslim? Those are there for tourists, not for Muslims. Well, Walid came back every day begging for those Bibles. Finally, one day, nobody else was in the area, and, and the old man looked cautiously both directions to make sure no one was around. And then he said, okay, I'll sell you the little one. He took it out, wrapped it in a trash bag, and Walid put it inside his coat and went back to his room. And that night, he read the little one, the Gospel of Luke, 
over and over and over again, and it changed his life. A few more weeks and months and years went by. In that time, Walid met some other Christians. He studied with them a little bit, was baptized into their church. But what they were teaching and what he was reading in the Bible wasn't matching up, so he was frustrated. And then one day a lady came into his shop where Walid was working. She was from West Africa. She was a banker who had moved to his country. She was an Adventist. They started a friendship. She began to talk. They started praying together once in a while. She began to invite him to their Bible study group that a, that a group of the Adventist business people who were there working had going on. And after another year or two of wrestling with smoking and studying, finally Walid was baptized and joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Today, Walid is one of our very few national pastors in, in the Middle East and North Africa. Walid and we thank God for a layperson, a banker, who moved to a strange country to work and wondered what they could possibly accomplish there. But God used their faithful work to bring Walid to him. We need hundreds more like that banker lady to come and help us in the Middle East and North Africa. But when you think of MENA, the Middle East and North Africa, I can almost guarantee you think of wars, terrorism, maybe deserts, oil, maybe a few camels and pyramids. And yes, we have all of that. We also, as Denzel was mentioning, have some of the most fantastic architecture in the world in Dubai and Qatar and some of the other places. We have so much. We have mountains with snow in them. In fact, they have snow skiing in Lebanon every winter. A year or two ago, we had 21 feet of snow in the mountains. and it's, it's not what you picture in your minds from the news. But what I really wish is that you could see the people, real people like you and I, people who love their families and who worry about the future. And there are lots of people in MENA. There are 500 million of them. That's way more people than live in the entire North American division. We have 500 million people. In fact, there are only three divisions of the world church that have as many people as MENA has. MENA is a huge territory with almost no Seventh-day Adventists. It takes me longer to fly across the Union than it does to fly from Lebanon to the United States. In fact, if I took our union and I put a pin in Morocco on one edge and flipped the whole union over, Iran comes to somewhere over by San Antonio, Texas. It's a huge, huge union. If you divided up every Seventh-day Adventist in the North American division so that we all lived in a different community, and if we had each Adventist member contact one person a day, it would take us about a year to make the first contact with everyone living in North America. If we did the same thing in India, it would take two years. In South America, five months. In Peru, about a month. If we went to the Philippines, it takes four months. In Southern Africa, Indian Ocean Division, it would take 58 days. But if we divided up every Adventist in the Middle East and North Africa so that even my wife and I lived in different cities, and if each of us contacted one person a day, it would take us 450 years to contact everybody that's currently living there with a first contact. You see, we have very 
few Seventh-day Adventists living in the Middle East and North Africa. To look at at another way, around the world we have an average of one Seventh-day Adventist church or company for every 50,000 people. That's average around the world, one for every 50,000 people. If we had that average in MENA, we should have 10,000 churches and companies, but we have about 40. Not 10,000 like the world average, we have about 40. If a wealthy donor came along and gave us money to buy or build or rent 10,000 churches so that we could have the same average as the world, we couldn't even put one member in each of those churches. In fact, every Sabbath morning, each of our 3,000 members would have to run around and quickly turn the lights on and open the doors of three churches. We can't even, we, we don't have a company or a church for every 50,000. We don't even have one member for every 50,000 people. We have so few Adventists to be lights in our communities. And yet the work in our area goes forward only when we have people on the ground beginning to make friends, like the man that that Denzel met, working there, praying with people in the hospital. That's when the work goes forward. Mrs. White described well the work in our part of the world in Ministry of Healing, page 143, and I know you know this quote. She said, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy to them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. Our problem is, around the world, including Mena, we often want to skip over those first steps and go right to the last one, to inviting people to follow Jesus. That's definitely our longing in the Middle East and North Africa. We want to invite people to follow Jesus but it's the last step in the process, not the first step. And it's usually ineffective unless we have carefully followed the first steps. Mrs. White goes on in that same passage, Ministry of Healing, page 143. She said, there is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing, okay, that's hard for pastors and evangelists. She says, if less time, not more, if less time, were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice, accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God, This work will not, cannot be without fruit. That holds true in MENA today. That's a wonderful promise. Regardless of what you see in the news and what your mind tells you about our part of the world, hearts are open in the Middle East and North Africa like never before in history. We have tremendous opportunities today as a church. The problem is, We don't have anyone on the ground in most of the cities of Mena who can mingle, meet needs, make friends, and then invite people to follow Jesus. Not long ago, a Muslim man in Iran had a dream 
And we could tell you many stories about dreams. But in his dream, he heard that guests were coming to visit him. And, and he, was, he was really, really frustrated because he had nothing to offer them. Now, one of the most humiliating things that can happen to you if you're a Middle Easterner is for guests to come and you have nothing to share with them. Uh, sometimes Barbara and I have visited in even a poor home. And, and if we got there by surprise and they didn't have anything to share with us, we would notice one of the little kids slip out the back door and in a few minutes come back in carrying a bag with a bottle of soda and some cookies. They have to have something to share with their guests. This man, he, he was concerned because guests were coming and he had nothing to share with them. What was he going to do? And then suddenly, a picture on the wall started talking to him. He looked at it in surprise and it was a picture of Jesus. And the picture said to him, don't worry about what you're going to give your guests. I'm here. I will give them living water. And then the man woke up. He didn't know what it meant. You remember, he had never read the Bible. He had absolutely no idea what Jesus might be talking about with living water. He didn't know who he could go to to ask. He assumed that a Christian might know the answer to that, a follower of Jesus. But if there were any followers of Jesus in his Iranian village, he didn't know who they were. They would have been secret and he didn't know who to go to. But he knew he had a nephew that had recently become a Christian. In fact, he had really mistreated that nephew after he became a Christian. He had, he had turned him away, said, you're no longer part of the family. He wouldn't let him come visit his cousins. He had totally shut him off. He wondered if the nephew would even be willing to help him, but finally, secretly, he went and found the nephew and told him the dream and said, can you tell me what it means? And lovingly, with great rejoicing, the nephew got out his Bible and read to him the passage about Jesus and the woman at the well and the living water. He read to him several other passages about the water of life. And today, that uncle and his whole family and almost half of the village in Iran are secret believers in Jesus. And the nephew? Well, recently, the nephew took a trip out of Iran, and while he was outside in a neighboring country, he accidentally bumped into some Seventh-day Adventists. And after a period of deep study and searching, he has joined the Seventh-day Adventist church. And today, he's looking for ways to share what he has learned with his uncle and others. Those stories are being repeated over and over throughout Mena wherever we're able to plant a dedicated Adventist in an unentered community. But what about the hundreds and hundreds of cities in Mena where we don't have a single remnant end-time believer in Jesus living? Who's going to tell them? Who's there to live and mingle and meet their needs and win their confidence and then invite them to follow Jesus? Did you know that Jesus, while he was here on earth, never told his followers to pray for money. But over and over again, he told them to pray for laborers to go into the harvest. We understand why. We always could use more money. And we are thankful for you members who are faithful in your tithes and mission offerings. Those provide the bulk of our support for the work in Mena. We're also thankful for donors who go above and beyond their regular tithes and mission offerings and, and, and make special donations to our work. Those donations are a tremendous blessing. 
But our greatest need is not money. It's people, dedicated Seventh-day Adventists who are willing to come in and work in our countries in Mena. So today, I want to share with a few of our needs with you. I could give you a huge list. I shared a few at GC Session. I'm going to give you a few different ones here and repeat one or two. But we could give you many. I just want to share a few with you. Especially, I want to plead with you to be praying that God will send tent makers to Mena. Tent makers, you know, it's uh, kind of a loose term that we use to refer to anyone who is, is working at a job to earn their support, not getting their support from the church, but who is, is there as a missionary, like Paul, like Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers. We need people who are willing to come and work in our area, not just to make money. We need dedicated Adventists that are willing to come who know that their reason for being there is mission. You know what a difference that attitude makes? I want to illustrate it with another category of worker. I was surprised to find that in the Middle East and North Africa, we have hundreds of Adventist students who have come from around the world on scholarships to study in many of the universities. Hundreds of them. But their goal in coming has been the degree. So when that's their goal, then everything else becomes secondary and if the pressure builds up they they compromise they begin to take their tests on sabbath they begin to to do things that they know they shouldn't do they're compromising because their goal is the degree not mission when we go around the world and recruit students for our program that we call the Waldensian student program where we hand pick young people and plant them in universities for mission their purpose is different. We have about 50 of them in place right now in various universities and we're looking for many more than that. Their goal is the mission and so when the pressure comes they're willing to fail a class if necessary. They're willing to get thrown out of school if that's what happens and be sent home. Their goal is the mission. When a person comes to a country in the Middle East and North Africa just for a job and money, they're afraid to lose that job. What will their family do for support back home? What will happen to their investment in getting there? What if their boss makes up a story about them and they get thrown into jail? If they've come for the money, they are easily led to compromise what they stand for. But if they come for mission, they see their job as a way of being there to become friends with people they could otherwise not touch. They do excellent work because they're there as a witness for Jesus. They make friends and pray for their co-workers and clients to have dreams. You know, in the Middle East and North Africa Union, there are millions, literally millions, of people coming into our countries to work every year. Most of them are non-Christian. Most of them are coming in for the money. They're coming in to take jobs in big companies and governments where they work as professors, as doctors, as nurses, as engineers, cell phone technologists, computer programmers, accountants, bankers, taxi drivers, construction personnel, and house help. Any type of work. They're coming in by the thousands, by the millions. And we believe that there should be hundreds or even thousands of dedicated Seventh-day Adventists coming in as part of that group to be there for witness, not just for the job. We don't need just pastors. In fact, 
we can't use very many pastors. We will accept a pastor if he has another degree, but the, what we really need are people with other, with other specialties, other degrees, other work experience that can come in. We need professionals from every walk of life. And then we have a, a goal. We haven't gotten there yet. We need some money. We need some help. But we need to develop a database for recruiting tent makers. We need to have the names and addresses and languages and CVs and skill sets and experience of thousands of Seventh-day Adventists in that database so that when we see a job posted in Kuwait or Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Morocco or Libya or somewhere else, we can quickly get on the phone with somebody who has the right skills and say, would you be willing? to go to that city as a tent maker and take that job with that big company or that, that government office. There's an Adventist engineer who's been working in Saudi Arabia for many years. He and his wife work very hard at their jobs and at making friends with the people in their community and their co-workers. They regularly have people over to their house for meals. And often in that quiet, personal setting, the discussions turn to spiritual matters. One young man that comes to their house many times through the last few years works in a different city. When he's off work for a weekend or a few days, he comes to, the, to where this tent maker couple live and sometimes spends days at their house just watching them, listening, talking, studying, sharing. They've begun to share Bible principles with him and he's using those in his issues of family and work and he's seeing dramatic changes as a result of, of listening to the Bible principles and applying them to his life. Do you know where that young man works? He works in Mecca. Now Mecca is a city of, of more than a million people. It's one of our big cities that we have absolutely no idea how we're going to get somebody in there to work. When I drive through Saudi Arabia and I go past Mecca, that's what I have to do. I have to go past Mecca on the interstate. There's a huge interstate. On the interstate are these great big green signs. One side says, Muslims only, left lanes. The other sign says, non-Muslims, right lanes only. You have to go around the bypass. Only Muslims can go into Mecca. They have checkpoints and they, they check to make sure. How are we going to get somebody into Mecca? We've been agonizing and praying over that. But now we realize God already has a plan, probably more than one that we aren't aware of. He's already at work even in Mecca. And he's doing it through the lives of a faithful tent maker couple who have gone from their homes to live in a difficult country of Saudi Arabia and make friends with the people around them. Another thing we need is we need business people to come and set up branches to their companies in our countries. You could tell us your expertise. We could talk with you and choose a city where we don't have anything going on that would fit your needs and our, our strategic plans. And, and you could come and open a branch. You'd have to do the research and get the permits and, and do the funding sources and everything. But you would be helping to open up work in a city where we currently have no Seventh-day Adventists. Another thing we need is a series of nursing homes or elderly care facilities. We need those facilities to be staffed by Adventists who don't drink alcohol, don't eat pork, don't pray to saints, 
What a powerful witness those workers would have on the families who need a place to bring their, their elderly member who no longer can be cared for at home. In many of our cities, a series of vegetarian restaurants or cafes would be a wonderful blessing, a way to open up work and make friends and, and begin to meet people. Another item that's very dear to our heart is the literature ministry. Now that one has been a little hard, a little puzzling what to do for the last few years. But the last two summers, we've gathered a group of young people from America, Australia, Germany, Mexico, and our Middle Eastern countries, and we have teamed them up to sell books for two summers now in Lebanon. They've gone from city to city, making amazing connections and distributing thousands and thousands of books. Many of them are health books, but quite a few of them are also full message books like The Great Hope, The Great Controversy, and others. We, we have a problem, though. We need someone to come and be a coordinator for follow-up for those literature evangelist interests. We have, we have very few members and pastors. In most of the cities where they're selling books, we don't have a single Seventh-day Adventist. And, and follow-up, especially in our countries, is not a one-time visit. Follow-up means somebody who will come back to the home repeatedly, week after week, month after month, maybe starting with answering their health questions for the family. And later, as they've won confidence, the questions may turn to spiritual issues. We need somebody to come. An experienced Bible worker with training as a health educator would be wonderful. Right now, we don't have the person or the budget for them, but we believe God will supply. We're just thrilled that at least we've been able to make the first step and start selling books, but now we want to follow up on the selling of those books. You see, the harvest is ripe in the Middle East and North Africa. Jesus didn't say pray for the harvest, did he? It's ripe, he, and we see that all the time. He said pray for laborers. That's what we're missing. We need people on the ground mingling, meeting needs, winning confidence, and then inviting their new friends to follow Jesus. It's time for Jesus to come, and we don't want to be here another 450 years. I don't think we will be either. We are seeing two parallel movements developing. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. I believe the latter rain is falling today. We are seeing... First of all, doors to people's hearts being thrown open across the Middle East and North Africa like we've never seen before. ISIS is helping with that a lot. People are frustrated at what they're seeing and they're saying there must be something different. Right now, they don't want to talk to Christians. They think Christians are pagans and they don't want anything to do with them. But they're also frustrated with their own religion. And when an Adventist moves into their community and they see someone who's a follower of Jesus but doesn't wear a cross, doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't eat pork, doesn't pray to saints, doesn't live like the movies, doesn't believe that the temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. When they see those things in an Adventist, they say, wow, and they begin to ask questions every single time. We are also seeing a movement of God impressing the hearts of Adventists around the world. We see it sweeping across our university campuses and through gatherings of professionals. Dozens 
have been coming to us and are at various stages in making plans to come and join us in the Middle East and North Africa. They're making massive sacrifices, giving up good-paying jobs to come to an unknown future. In fact, we know and they know that some of them could well be called on to make the ultimate sacrifice by coming. Today, I want to share with you four situations that are that are in need of earnest prayer right now. There's a dentist and a nurse couple from Europe who are working on plans to go to southern Libya as tent makers. And I think you know the situation in Libya. You see it in the news often. They are going to need our prayers, our earnest prayers for protection and guidance as they move into that country. We have a couple from the United States that have just given up their jobs and are heading to one of our countries that's been often in the news with attacks on tourists, terrorist attacks on tourists. They're going to find work in one of those cities that we have arranged with them. He's a social worker. She's been a teacher at one of our Adventist universities. And they've left that all to come to an unknown future in a difficult country. A young physician from the country of Colombia has given up a high-paying job at a prestigious university where he teaches neurorehabilitation. I don't even know what it is, but it sounds impressive. He's left all that and gone to one of our largest countries in MENA, a country that's been through a very difficult political time and is continuing unrest. And he's gone to find a job in one of the universities or hospitals there so that he can be a tent maker. And a French-speaking young lady with an amazing background and skill set has just gone to one of our French-speaking countries. She's gone to the city that we've worked out with her. She had to go in there cold turkey and find a place to stay. She found a place to stay with someone from that country, a national, a widow lady, uh, not a widow, a, a recently divorced lady, and, and she's been there about two weeks now, I believe. After the first week of living with that lady, the lady said, has had a number of deep spiritual discussions with her, and the lady says to her, I'm not sure exactly what's happening, but I believe God sent you here to this city for a special purpose. You know, these and many others have already made their decision to go. They're not just thinking about it. They have actually entered the enemy's territory and that old roaring lion is not going to sit by idly and let them have a peaceful time of it. We've added 135 missionaries to MENA in the last three years. We need to add hundreds more to even make a drop in the bucket, to even be able to put one or two people in each city. Hundreds more. But these people, these pioneer missionaries, are going to need prayer warriors holding them up. They're going to need people to come and join them and form teams in each city. And now I want to make a very specific call. I, this is not a general call. I don't want very many people to stand. You need to consider carefully before you answer this call. But if you are willing to join some of these four individuals or the many others who have been making the decisions to come. If you're willing to join them and become part of their team or some other team and go wherever God might send you, would you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to be careful as you make that decision. It's not an easy decision and should not be made lightly. 
I often cry as I make these calls because I know that some who respond will never return home. Some will be asked to make the ultimate sacrifice. So I'm asking you not to stand unless you're willing to be a martyr for Jesus, if that's what he should ask. If you feel that burden on your heart now or at some point in the future, come by the Adventist Mission booth later today or tomorrow and talk with us. Give us your contact information so that we can be in touch. You know, a few, minute, a few months ago, I was at our Adventist University. Yes, you can sit down. Thank you. A few months ago, I was at our Adventist University in Columbia for a mission weekend. On Friday night, the president, Dr. Acosta, made a call for those who were willing to be martyrs to come up on the platform, and more than a hundred business people and young people came up on the platform. Then he asked me to come up and pray for them, but I could hardly pray because of the tears running down my cheeks and choking my voice. You see, Dr. Acosta hadn't just called other people's children. There on the platform was his youngest daughter, a university student, who had come forward and said, I'm willing to be a martyr for Jesus, Daddy. Not only that, I knew that Dr. Acosta's other daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter, little bitty granddaughter, were even then in the final stages of their move from Argentina to the Middle East, where they would be working as tent makers. I want us today to divide up into some small groups of two or three and pray together. I, I want you to ask God, I want you to pray that He will send laborers into the harvest. Yes, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the harvest to be ripened. We need protection. Pray for all of those, but pray that He will impress laborers to go into the harvest. It's time for Jesus to come. The harvest is ripe even in the Middle East and North Africa. Now we need to plead for laborers who will move into that harvest field. And then we need to pray earnestly for those who decide to go. Would you divide up into groups of two or three at this time and, and pray together and then we will close with a general benediction. Let us stand as we pray for the benediction. Father in heaven this morning, what an inspiring story we've just heard from your work overseas. As we've knelt before you, our hearts have been broken as we see the amount of work that still has yet to be done. Please increase our faith. You've told us that when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on this earth? And we are just a few, but we believe that it's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. Teach us what it means to give, to give our hearts. Teach us what it means to give ourselves. Teach us what it means to live by faith and to realize that there's nothing in this world that can compare with giving our lives to Jesus and making friends. May the testimony of these, your brothers and sisters, be such as we leave these meetings this weekend that many hearts would be aware of who you are by the lives of us, your people. Most of all, we ask, Lord, that the angel would go before us, beside us and behind us, and that we would walk with you. For this we pray and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. 
Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.